0: Wir im
1: Everyone, and welcome to Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman from Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple, Congregation Anshe And with me, as always, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Congregation Anshe in New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler from the Salman Schechter of Long Island. Shalom, everyone. Shalom, l'cha. we have a double Parsha this week. We got to get right into it. We are concluding the book of Bamidbar with Parshiot Matot Maaseh. We're also noting that it's Shabbat Mevarachim. We are welcoming, if you could say that, the new month of Av, starting on Wednesday this week. And we are also uh, reading the second after of Admonition. Uh, this is in part of the preparation for Tisha b'a. But we have a lot to discuss in Parshot Matot Maaseh. Uh, the Parsha begins, Matot begins with the discussion of vows. And just we need to talk about the value of words, the value of promises, and the value of bonds, oaths, and commitments, and, and why the centrality on uh, the word. Uh, Barry, you want to take that?
2: So, the context for the laws in the beginning of the Parsha is that a woman is subject to have her vows annulled by her father if she is not of age, and subsequently by her husband, that they have the last word on their word as it were. And I think most of us in today's world find this somewhere between objectionable and thoroughly objectionable. Take your pick. and. Um, I think sometimes we lose sight of what's really the ekar here, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the centrality of the word. That in the Torah, words are almost equivalent to deeds. And there's a, both a truth and a power to the words, and we're not supposed to abuse them. If we say we're going to do something, that is a commitment. It's not, uh, you know... Uh, in, in our vocabulary, we talk about the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions, and this goes for our speech as well. That our speech has the force of law, and we have to take care to act on it. Well, this
1: is, of course, a you know central idea within within the Bible itself that uh, God creates with words. He, he or he rakia he everything, um, and and words uh, you know form that power. You can create and destroy worlds
0: with words. Jeremy. I want to weigh in on on this and and just kind of, yeah, I think what you're what you're saying is quite true. Baruch sheamar olam. blessed is the one who spoke the world into existence, um, and and I think that you know in ancient times, obviously uh, there was a system of vows that were sort of formal, you know, neders and and um, things like that that were that took on a kind of sacramental quality when you made them, and. And so to promise something to God and in front of the community, the person cannot desecrate their word. They have to do what they said they were going to do. And probably they, the, uh, of course, agree with Barry, the objectionable gender hierarchy means that, that women, you know, girls in their parents' homes, fathers' homes, or wives in their husbands' homes, they weren't entirely in charge of their own lives, right? So they didn't have the necessary um, uh, social standing always to be able to to determine what they were going to do. They, so to speak, worked for somebody. But I think that the, the idea that makes this an interesting passage in the Torah, that you can promise something, and it's a Torah prohibition to not do what you've promised, in the Bible that really means a ritual context or a kind of a religious promise to God, but I think that this is so true in our own lives that you desecrate your word, you desecrate your own integrity if you don't do what you said you're going to do. So let me ask you something. I'm, I'm struggling with this. What do you make of kol nidre? What do you
1: make of start? Could kol nidre, kol nidre it echoes some of the language in this uh, passage here? And kol nidre is all about saying, look, I... I I wasn't able to do what I promised, or I'm not going to be able to do what I promised, mm-hmm. and 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 in this sense, I get it's it's this is the essence of of human failure, which is not living up to the promises to others and not living up to the promises to yourself. Very so it's
2: much. interesting that you mentioned Kol Nidre. It it's hard to imagine Yom Kippur beginning some other way. Yeah. Um, we're Ashkenazic Jews, so we're familiar with the Ashkenazic melody for Kol Nidre, and that's the definition of Yom Kippur. I would bet that if you would ask most people to describe a powerful memory of Yom Kippur, it would be Kol Nidre. And so the question really is, what do those words mean? You know, we have all these kinds of, Jeremy was talking about the different kinds of oaths and promises, there are six or seven, I think, that are mentioned in Kol Nidre, in are Aramaic, so we can break our teeth over them. And... Me, kona me, kinu ye, kinu mm. Yeah, oh. there you go. I guess you're getting ready. Um, With the and I think that the flip side of failure is redemption. When we come into Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is supposed to be a transformative day. We begin as a sinner but we're supposed to end in a state of redemption. And you can't be redeemed if you have no concept of personal failure.
1: Failure, I, failure is you know, the the gap between what you
0: aspire for yourself and what you... It's, it's what very you real, and I think that at some level, um, the self-acceptance that comes from Shuva, the, the ability to stare in, your, you know, stare in your own failure in the face, I think that there's something unique about um, the, the neder and the shvuah, the, the various vow formulations that haven't been fulfilled, because it's like you're lying in God's name. You know, when mm-hmm. Adonai lashav, the third commandment of don't take God's name in vain means not to swear and put the divine name to a statement of yours if it's not true. And um, I, I don't think this is the shot of Kol Nidre, but the way I feel about it is that um, to renounce your vows means to, to come in to try to, to shed the dishonesty and those kinds of lies that you have told in God's name, I swear to God, I'm going to do this. Um, you have to be able to put those lies aside to be able to, to have the culinary experience.
2: And just to push that point a little bit further, one of the, the great truths, I think, as you get older, is to recognize that you're going to fail the coming year, too. Right. And you can't think that this one day of Yom Kippur that you've reached the end. You know, it, in a sense, it's a little bit of the myth, our version of the myth of Sisyphus. We're going to fall down the hill again and push the rock back up. And I think we have to recognize, even on Yom Kippur, when we're in the midst or hopeful for this personal transformation, that. It's a never-ending process. We're going to get right back the next morning after Yom Kippur and start all over again. And we hope that we've moved the rock, to borrow the Sisypheanian image, a little bit, but it's, we're not going to get rid of it. All right, so let's move on. We
1: have, we have so much material in this parsha, Vengeance, nakom, nikmat, yon, Right? Israel Israel versus Midian, this is like the final chapter of this. this is a difficult parsha, difficult part of the Parsha uh, first the idea of retribution, vengeance uh, the, um, and the scale to which Israel is instructed in exacting its uh, retribution on Midian. Um some parts of the Torah are difficult for us and how do we square the Torah? Uh, these difficult parts, with um, the sensibilities that we have—I mean, we we touched on that even with with re- regard to the vows and and issues pertaining to women. But uh, how does a modern person read these these passages?
2: With a great deal of pain, I think. Yeah. Uh, they're hard to read. Um, whenever it, the destruction of an entire people is called for, it, it's hard to believe that that actually has divine sanction. Um, So, and this goes back to the beginning, to uh, chapter uh, 18, I guess, in in Breshik, where Abraham is arguing on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there, I think we're led to believe that, in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah is worthy of total destruction. But even then, it's very hard to take because we know that Abraham has a small family there who are gonna be rescued which I think is what underscores the fact that everyone else is not worthy of rescue. But it's hard to accept that in real life, there are people like that. Yeah. And people in the collective sense, we know that there are evil people and we know that there are bad people. And as we mentioned last week, we know that sometimes wars have to be fought, but that doesn't mean that we're going to call a whole group of people to the sword, because they have to be destroyed from the face of the earth. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah. Jeremy, we have we have um, a small, really fairly small set of uh, tools with which to read these really really uh, difficult passages, and, and and there are consequences to how we do this. I mean, to say to say what I mean in a little bit slightly abstract way, I think you have to read. To the Torah, whatever else it is, it is an ancient text and, and it did emerge um, in an ancient world and, and the world is almost unimaginably different from, from our own. And you can um, read these things, you know, it, it, uh, from a historical perspective and say, well, you know, that was an ancient world and that that was then and this is now. But And that is certainly one of the things that you have to do. However, there's a real consequence to that because... Then the Torah just becomes an ancient book from an unimaginably different world. Well, that's and the thing we're, that.
1: we're we're engaged in this conversation. We are we're, we're, you know th- we're just a microcosm of the conversation that happens every week. You know we're always you know trying to to grapple with these these very very difficult questions, including some of the questions that, that arise from from this uh, this moment with uh, with Midian. I mean, I, you know, there's. There's a, a moment here. Bilam, who who makes a, a, another cameo appearance, he, the the Torah tells us that he is put to death by the by the sword, right? The, because he uses the tools of of Israel in order to curse them. We use the tools of of the of this person's nation to to destroy him uh, and and uh, and other kinds of very difficult. Uh, things but you know one moment theory which is Moses, Moses doesn't play the central role in this war of retribution uh, because Moses has a soft spot
0: for Midyah well he's got a, soft spot for, he got a soft spot for his wife exactly and, and I, I would say that the you know to me one of the most daring midrashim okay it's unbelievably daring, and it comes up all the time, and it's it's so much part of the furniture in Judaism, we don't even notice it, but it's it's the Yud Gimel Midot, you know, Adonai Adonai al-Rachim v'chanu n'erach ha'pai v'achezed v'emet n'otzer chesed l'alafim n'oseh Abon v'feshav vena v'nakeh, period. And, and you know, God is gracious and kind and patient and, and cleansing. Well, the, the thing is, is anybody who reads the Bible and knows a little biblical Hebrew knows, that's a, a period in the middle of the sentence which stops the, the, between the phrase, you know, v'nake which really means, but we'll absolutely not cleanse. Well, we read it in synagogue to mean affirmatively, yes, cleanse. And so that's a case where rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition, took a harsh Bible passage and made it sweet and beautiful for the God that they could believe in. And so I would say that the, the thing that Elliot's referring to now about That little detail where Moshe, who doesn't take the lead in this war of vengeance, the Torah is kind of subtly telling us that Moshe didn't really want or couldn't be an instrument of vengeance. And that says something to me about what people should do. We should find the ways to get past our impulse to vengeance.
2: So just to add to that, the person that does replace Moshe is Pinchas.
0: Yeah, back to
2: Pinchas. And Rashi's comment is not Elazar's father because Elazar's father is the high priest and he cannot go to war. And then Rashi goes on to comment that Pinchas is part of Mo- Moses is showing him honor by allowing him to finish what he had started when he killed the couple um, two weeks ago at the end of Parsha Balak when, um, at, at Baal Poor and now he's going to participate and lead the expedition to finish off Midian. Right, it's a complicated... Uh, pen- and we're, then we're left with this disturbing image because we know that Pinchas is going to replace Eleazar as a high priest.
0: We talked, well, is is that true exactly? Because we talked about, I think we we might have mentioned this one detail last week about talking about Pinchas, that, that in halacha, if you are a, if you have killed a human being, you are not supposed to say Birkara uh, Kohanim. Um and of course that came you could you can find sort of small ways in which that's relevant in modern life, like let's say you were in a fatal car accident or something. But uh with with, with the Tzahal, with with Kohanim uh, and the IDF who who may have had to kill for for um, very good reasons, can they still be the instruments of Yasem Shalom Can they still be the instruments of peace if they have been um, and uh, the instruments of death. And so that Elazar couldn't do it because he can't, you know, as we say in Numbers 19, if you've touched a, a, a or, you know, mate or keber or halal or, or, or keber, you, if you touch a grave or a dead body or a sword or, or something like that, then you, then you are impure and Elazar can't be impure. Um, I don't know what I feel about this whole either or, either your peace or your war, but the, I think the theme is that maybe Pinhas could do this in a way that Elazar can't, because he's already been an instrument of violence.
1: All right. Why don't we we'll leave that one there and, and go on to, to one of the most often uh, taught passages of this, um, of the Parsha, which is um, the tribe of Reuven, the tribe of God. They have big flocks, large flocks of, of animals and They see the pasture land that's on the uh, west the east of the of the Jordan and um, they want it and uh, there's a subtle exchange that goes on between these tribes and Moses and uh, we, we always um, you know point to this passage I, I, I can recall many times uh, back at the Mahaanenu where we we gave Torah about this this is about being together, solidarity. This is about what it means to be part of something larger. And why is that? Why, why does this passage reflect uh, belonging and how to belong, Barry?
2: So you've been on the road for 40 years. You finally are within sight of the land you're about to inherit, as God has promised you and your ancestors, Abraham, Yisrach, and Yaakov, way back when. You're traveling with the bones of Yosef, which is the actual physical connection that the generation that left Egypt and grew up in the wilderness has to the land of Israel. And just as you pull up to the river that separates you from your land, you say, ah, I think I've seen enough and I'll (laughs) stay here. It's, It's hard to figure out what actually is going on? And as you mentioned, they're interested in pasture land. The destiny, I think of the Israelites when they go into the land is to become farmers. That in fact is where civilization comes from. You know, we call it agriculture because there is a culture to farming that allows human, human life to develop in a way that it does not quite develop in nomadic and semi-nomadic cultures. And so what's Important to recognize is Moses, as soon as they say this, the first thing that he mentions, we've been here before when we sent the spies. Mm -hmm. And the spies also didn't want to conquer the land, and that did not end well for us. This can't happen again. And so they negotiate the terms of Reuven and God and the Chetzi Sheva and Menashe is going to be tacked on a little bit later. And they're going to move in with the army and conquer the land and leave their flocks and their families behind to uh, set up shop, I guess. And the curious thing, as we discussed before, is that they promise to stay until the land is conquered. And the land is never fully conquered. But we know that they settled down, so something is going to be lost in the in the translation. But certainly, in the first wave of conquest, they, they move in with everyone else. You
0: no, know, I think the uh, this this particular story has a has a real re- resonance. You know, in the United States, here in 2019 and 2020, we're talking a great deal about economic inequality, and during COVID, we are also saying, you know, we're all in this together. We're all in this together and the the question the this story portrays Reuven and god and and uh, either half of the tribe of Menashe or the half tribe of Menashe. I'm not sure which one is the right, right. translation of that. Um, they're portrayed as like being really wealthy, and there's an aspect of what they're saying that says, you know i got I got a good house myself. I want to keep my cattle here. you guys." I hope you're living be well, but I'm not really willing to go through this big project for us. I'm happy for the small us of my, my tribe and my family. And what ultimately happens in this story is that Moshe overcomes that and they say, well, you know, that's just not going to work for the big us. You, you can have this land, but only insofar as you promise to to take uh, part, you know, participate in the big us project of of conquering Eretz Yisrael and I do think that that's true for any society there's a balance between what's good for individuals or individual sub parts of society but that can never overcome the the uh, overall commitments to be part of a project together and that's what what these tribes do they promise um uh, ostensibly to be the to be you know the, the forward troops for the for the battle that's gonna that's gonna come. It's interesting, you know. We
1: we use this expression. We'll, we'll get through this together, and uh, that's a particularly uh, American expression. In Israel, they say "navor gametzen. We'll get over this. We will all. We will get through this as well, um, and it it reflects two different sensibilities. One, which is I think the anxiety in America that we're not together, and the other is a historical anxiety in Israel, which is. You know, we've we've gone through stuff, hard stuff before. The two they come from two different places. But let's go on. We go to we go now to Parshat Mase. Um, I always have a fondness for the beginning of Parshat Mase because it's um, first of all in in the Shul, which we we still miss. Uh, we read the we read this part slightly differently. We read it with the 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 melody of Az Shir, Shiratayam, which also has echoes of shirashim is something kind of romantic about it right and and we're enumerating all the different places that israel has passed in its journey and it's a a quite this is now a transition itself because this moment of recording all these places is is essential to to a people's narrative. We are remembering where we were. Um, and uh, that, that's why this, this passage of journey, this, uh, it makes, uh, has a lot of resonance, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you all, you both know the, the Rashi, the first Rosh I have it here, where, where he says, why are all these written? To tell of God's love. To tell of God's love even though he decreed that they would be staying in the desert, it's not going to be such a, a you know, th- this journey of 40 years that they wouldn't have rest. So that They had 42 places and it goes on and these are the places where I stopped with you, these are the places where I rested with you, these are the places where I nourished you, nurtured you, etc. So it becomes in a way, transitioned to a um, to a, a saga, a real saga of intimacy and relationship between God and the people. That's
2: So at the end of the book, it, it certainly is a celebration. When we get to Devarim next week, we're going to have another abridged version of the list, and that's going to be a condemnation. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, Moses is going to reprove the people by mentioning the places, and we don't quite get that sense here that... But as you said, it's a way of summing up where we've been, because if we don't know where we were, we're never going to get to where we need to be. Exactly, exactly.
1: So let's go to
2: Ari Miklat.
1: cities of refuge. This is a remarkable institution uh, in ancient Israel, given the fact that um, that honor, honor killing, honor vengeance, blood honor is such a central feature of antiquity, probably also a central feature even in uh, uh the middle east up until our own time and and here the situation is that a person commits an act of manslaughter and that there is a claim in a prejudicial system where people actually felt the need to uh, avenge or or take the life of the person that committed the manslaughter and we studied a lot of this uh with our good friend jason Rogov a couple years ago in in the uh, in Talmud but uh Go over some of the things that you, you might recall and points that you may uh, think are important here.
0: Well, so the uh, you, you use the phrase prejudicial. You know, I, I think that's maybe not exactly correct because what we have here is it says, v'shaftu ha'eda, the, the community will judge, and then it says, v'hitzilu ha'eda, and then the com- community will say, so like so-and-so, let's call him Ruven, you know, they were off chopping wood in the forest, and he's swinging the axe, and, uh, and oh, the, <laughs> the axe head goes off and kills someone. And, and kills Shimon. Um, and Shimon's brother is, like, you know, in a and he wants to kill Ruvain, but the, the, the community is described as having to fulfill the judicial function of investigating, and yeah. if they determine that, you know, Loma ato. Ato the, the, the guy who was the ex was the cause of the fatality, you know, didn't hate him and wasn't plotting against him, and really, it's total accident, you know, act of God. Um, then he the heit silu Then then the community has to save the person and deposit that person in the city of refuge, um, as, as you as you said, uh, Elliot. We, we studied this material at camp a couple of years ago, and and it's, it's evident from the talmudic treatment that there's sort of like three kinds of things. There's the total accident that nobody in a million years ever could have foreseen. And that person doesn't have to go into exile. Doesn't have to go to the city of refuge. It's just, you you really did nothing. Right. Um, the guy slipped on a a banana peel and, and hit his head. It was totally not your fault. Right. Then there's, I was juggling flaming torches in the middle of the street and lo and behold, somebody got, no, that's like straight up negligence. You don't get to go to the city of refuge, that's a real fault. City of refuge is for somebody who is not Karovla Mezid, not like almost it's really totally your fault, or Karovla Ones, like it's a total accident, it's not your fault, but you bear some responsibility. And so the city of refuge has some aspects of it that are like a prison, and some aspects of it that are like a um, a, a gift. You know, that's a, a sanctuary. Club. Sanctuary, yeah. Sanctuary.
2: So the premise is that b- before this law, if someone killed a member of your family, you had the ability or even the obligation to kill that person. Now we're going to s- stop the person that is not, as Jeremy said, is not willfully guilty from being persecuted. Yeah. And that person will end up in the Yermit Clot.
0: Okay. So Yermit Clot is mentioned in um, it's mentioned in, in uh, Exodus, It'll we mentioned again in Devarim, but I, I also find it very interesting that it is here in the penultimate chapter of the book of Numbers, because of the reason that, that Barry said, uh, we have now been wandering with the, the 38 years of the wandering, the, the 42 locations. So it's really not constant wandering. It's a lot, of, a lot of rest in there with the wandering. But we're about to enter the land of Israel. And so through Moshe, God says, all right, we're going to enter the land of Israel. You know, there's going to be real conflict here and there's going to be tragic accidents, and there's going to be death. This is, this is not going to be Disney World. Yeah. This is going to be a reality, and so we need to plan for what happens. When mean, Disney World going.
2: was one of the cities of rapture So
1: we are coming to the end of, of our time, but I just, you know, and we're, we're going to not talk about the, the last part of Benatslav Khad, although that's really important. I wanna, I, we're ending the book of Bamidbar, and, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of conversations on the different parashiyot. What questions is this, are, is this book trying to answer? What are the, 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 the central questions that we think this book has addressed? I want to turn to you, Barry, because we, we talked a little bit about that before. I,
2: I think in the central question is who and what is a Jew? Who's in the community? and who is not what things do you do that take you away and what things bring you in what is our common sense of purpose and what is your individual darach and and it's a way of examining all the different ways that communities can lose their centrifugal force and disintegrate ellie let's go
0: let's go to you next this is a book of,
1: of politics. I've, I've said it from the beginning. This is a book of of leadership, messiness of life, um, and and I like to see, although although you know, there's a real debate here. I see progression in Moshe here. I don't think he's becoming weaker as a leader. I think he emerges stronger and stronger. This is a book about leadership, about politics, about about just
0: people making trying to make a better union that mm-hmm. fail, Jeremy. Um, I'm just gonna make an observation about the English or Latin name of the book. You know, in Hebrew we call it Bamidbar and it's about the journey through the wilderness and in English or Latin we call it numbers. And it's about those many censuses and the lists of names. And I think that, um, you know, points towards what, what Barry was saying about the collective identities, the, the, the repeated need to number which you know, midrashically is about God's love for the people. I like I like to count all my all my precious precious Israelites, but um, I, I do think it is about holding the community together in a functioning way when it can be so hard. And some people, you know, some people rebel, and some people complain, and some people, you know, violate the norms. And how do you how do you keep holding the numbers all together? Fascinating. Wow, so we get to the end of this book and it's
1: Chazak, Chazak, we need We've had our own journey through this book. This is, so, this is what's beautiful about Jewish life, that um, the book itself mirrors the journey of the people. It mir- mirrors the journey of the Jewish community, the Jewish worship community through the year. We're turning another uh, chapter of the year as well. We say, be strong. We have lots of... Reasons to, to say that to, to each other. Chazak, Chazak. We need Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and we will be strengthening each other through Torah, through conversation, through community, through numbers, through leadership. And it's a great, great pleasure to have this opportunity to, to talk and to share Torah. The Love best it. Torah talk in Dutchess County. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say Shabbat Shalom to our growing audience. Shabbat Shalom and thank you for watching. Thank you.